0: reaper editor of royals review and joining me as usual is matthew lamar matthew how you doing have you ever uh have you ever stolen a home run ball from anyone in a game before
1: no and i've never uh, had a ball hit <laughs> uh at me uh like a foul ball um it's never happened and i have said this on twitter and and elsewhere i'm not going to steal it from someone you know it's but if like if i catch one it's mine and if there's a child next to me i'm not going to give it to them it's my ball i caught it i've never caught a ball baseball is is all about being a child at heart please let me have the ball i'm not giving it to a child i'm not taking it from a child that's a very very big difference though
0: yeah yeah if anyone didn't, doesn't know exactly what we're referencing uh a couple of incidents actually number one uh zach Hampel, who's kind of the, the the baseball fan who goes around trying to collect home run balls at every single stadium is a little a little bit obnoxious about doing so to be honest in my opinion uh but he was Uh, not allowed to go in a certain area of Coors Field in Colorado because he didn't have a ticket for that. And he went on a video to kind of make himself the victim and say, "What? this is ruining the game. It's like, dude, you're not you don't have a ticket for that section. Don't make a big deal about it. The other one is there's like a guy who I mean, like there was a article at the Star about him today. So uh, I almost feel bad for him at this point. But he. uh, he is was at the Padres Royals game over the weekend and caught a home run ball. That, or he did not catch the ball. He kind of took it away from some younger gentlemen uh, who are who are in better position for the game, the ball. And he was the exact same guy who on Friday a couple days before, uh, point blank home run hit right at him, and he dropped it. He had a glove on and dropped it uh so he he was uh he had a couple chances there for balls uh do not steal balls from other people uh be polite about it uh also joining us is jeremy Greco Jeremy, have you ever caught a foul ball or home run at a baseball game?
2: Nope, I've never had one hit anywhere near me. I will say that based on the loot that our our friend walked away with, please go ahead and steal a foul ball from me steal yeah. a home run for me and and let me get like five other signed balls. I'll take that trade.
0: Yeah, the kid that that got the home run stolen from him. The Royals did right by him. Good kudos to them. Uh, They they did hook him up with some like signed balls. I I think Juan Juan Soto
2: Soto signed balls. Like these were not cheapo
0: signed balls either. Did you see what Juan Soto wrote to? He said, "Sorry about that." (laughs) So that's kind of unique. I mean, that'd probably be worth something. You know, I think keep it for sentimental value. But um, yeah, so they did hook him up. Good for the Royals for doing that. Kind of just a weird, weird incident. So, Uh, but yeah, don't steal home run balls from kids. It's just not not a good look. Well, speaking of kids, the Royals have some young kids playing in their lineup every day. And, uh, you know, we've we've, we've gotten a chance to see them now, some of them for a couple months now. Uh, And, you know, every day in the lineup, there's usually about five, six, seven rookies uh, in the lineup. And I want to kind of get your guys' thoughts on what you've seen so far. I mean, obviously, um, you know, some have hit better than others. Some of, you know, I think all of them have had their moments at times. Uh, but Matthew, we'll start with you. What's kind of your overall impression of the young guys? Is there anyone that's kind of standing out to you so far uh, now that we we finally have the kids up and we're seeing them on a regular basis?
1: You know, I think they've been sort of about as expected. Um, you can't really expect um, rookies and young rookies. These are, you know, 22 and 23-year-olds. It's not like they're 25, 26-year-old rookies. You know, young rookies generally struggle. I wrote um, an article where I sort of pointed this out where, Um, you know, basically the average rookie since 2000 between the ages of 22 to 24. um, And the average rookie between the ages of 22 to 24 that had accrued at least 200 plate appearances in a given season um, their like median WRC plus was like 94. Um, And there in that list, there were a lot of players with negative wins above replacement. Um, And, You know, to be like that young and to get that many plate appearances, you know, these are pretty, you know, you know, I didn't do an extensive deep dive, but, you know, these the types of players who get lots of plate appearances when they're that young are like legit prospects, you know, 22 and 23 year old. You're thinking Bobby Witt, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, you know, Nick Prado. These guys are all, you know, legit prospects. And the median performance is just like less than one win above replacement and not at um, you know league average so rookies struggle um, and I don't really expect or didn't really expect um, you know anybody out of the Royals crop to really you know be great right out of the bat there's enough um, reasons to kind of doubt um, parts of all of their games um, that that you know're we're, we're, Pretty much expected. I mean, when you think about it, uh, you know, Nick Prado, the knock on him was strikeout rate. You struck out a lot in the minors. Well, he's striking out at about 35 percent in the big leagues. Um, He's got power, which everybody expected. But, you know, big strikeout rate. I'm thinking Bobby Witt. The knock on Bobby Witt was, you know, his bat tool. um, And he's uh, he's not been terrible. I mean, he's hitting his batting average is 251 right now. Um, which isn't bad, certainly not bad in 2022, but you know, that's not great. And also, he's not walking a lot. He has an on base percentage of 292, so that's, you know, below 300. That's, that's really not very good. Um, MJ Melendez has been fine. MJ Melendez's problems have been defensively, um, and he, he hasn't really been good in left field or at catcher. Those are very different defense positions. Um, so basically, all of these young guys, they have. You know, some kind of flaw, except for Vinny Pasquantino. He's been about as advertised. He's, hit, he's been the best hitter out of all of them. He's gotten on base. He's drawn a lot of walks. He's hit for power. Um, Vinny Pasquantino, um, you know, But then again, if you go back to the zips and the projection systems, Vinny Pasquantino was projected as having the highest uh, OPS among all Royals players this year, and lo and behold, that's pretty much what's happened. So... You know, it, 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 is it frustrating that we haven't seen like a Julio Rodriguez or an Adley Rushman who just like take off and are really awesome? You know, yeah, it's it's a little frustrating. But really, you know, among the four core Royals who you really sort of expect um, to be the core part of the team, you know, they're doing all right. They're hitting about league league average or slightly better. Um, Wits uh, on or OPS plus is at one of five. Vinny's is at 122. MJ's is at 105. Nick Provis is at 111. You know, that's 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 pretty good. Um, The real question is, do they have the supporting cast around them? Can Michael Massey be a starter? Um, Can Nate Eaton be a starter or a good uh, backup? Um, Can Drew Waters be a starter? That's really where the questions are. Um, And I don't really know the answer. We don't have enough data uh, there, but that that's really the question to me.
0: Yeah, I, I I think we there's pretty high expectations for fans f- from rookies just because rookies are fresh, rookies are new. They they kind of have the second quarterback syndrome where um you know, they haven't messed up yet. So you kind of project your wildest expectations on them and but the reality is, you know, like you said, they're going to have some ups and downs and we've seen that. I think Bobby Wood Jr. struggled out of the get-go. Um he hit, hit really well after that in May and June and then I think uh, in early August had another kind of slump. And, and it looks like the last couple of weeks has kind of come out of that. So he's going to have some ups and downs as he adjusts, as the league adjusts to him, as he readjusts. Um, and, and I think we've seen that on a lot of the guys, Jeremy, overall, what's been your kind of impression of these young guys? And, and is there anyone that sticks out to you a little bit?
2: So I'm the, the biggest thing that stands out to me is, is Bobby Witt Jr. Just has not turned into a superstar yet. That's the, the biggest thing. Um, and it's it's not that he should have or that he won't, but it was kind of what we were all hoping for. Was like if there was ever a rookie that the Royals were going to have who was going to come up and succeed right out of the gate, um, and probably I guess he would be the first one since probably Beltron. Um, it it would have been Bobby Witt Jr. and it didn't happen. Um, Vinny Pasquantino uh, really turned it on, and that was great. Um, unfortunately, he's hurt now, which sucks. Uh, a couple things I'm noticing... I'm looking at the Fangraphs page for the rookies in the Royals lineup. Um, so just some things I kind of noticed as I'm looking here is Nate Eaton has a positive FWAR uh, despite having a 58 WRC+. That's how good his defense is. I mean, it is small sample size, obviously. This is all small sample sizes, but that's a positive for me. I, I look at that and I go, okay. If he can figure out how to hit that, he's going to be something. Um, and then... Uh, you got, uh, Michael Garcia had a WRC plus a positive WRC plus of 103 when he was up. Um, so, you know, if he could figure out the defense thing, they might have another middle infielder who can hit. Um, MJ Melendez has, has had his ups and downs as has been mentioned. But those ops, those ups are so high when MJ Melendez gets hot, he gets really hot. And so the, just all he needs to do is, is get cold or less cold, less often um if he can get when he gets cold if he can be less cold or he can get cold less often or you know preferably both he's he's gonna be somebody um and another guy finally uh my or michael massey stands out to me that he's uh got you know 27 games under his belt it's not a lot but a 95 wrc plus is generally something you take from second base um and he's not being rated very well defensively right now but again tiny sample size he was a gold glove winner in the minor leagues last year um so i would expect that to turn around but the final thought I have is uh, Brewer Hicklin uh, is just tearing the cover off the ball in AAA. He's got more than 20 home runs, 20 stolen bases. He's uh, He's got a, a speed. Fangraph says his speed rating at 70, which, for those of you who don't know, the 2080, 2080 uh, uh, grading system that scouts use, that is huge. That's amazing. That's really fast. Um, and so he's he's got some serious tools, and he hasn't really gotten a shot. Uh, to play. He's gotten four plate appearances all year so far uh, in the big leagues of, across six games. So uh, I'm not really sure why he's not getting a shot to do a little bit more, uh, but I definitely hope to see something come from him uh, in the near future. So it's not like the, the guy's I know we've talked about how the the farm system is kind of dried up, but it's not completely empty. There are still some guys down there, like Hicklin, like Michael Garcia, uh, that can that can actually turn into something and fill in some some holes, maybe if uh, these things aren't if these guys that are here don't completely work out.
0: You talk about defense a little bit, and, and Nate Eden. It, it's been a couple games. I do like what I've seen out of him. I don't know if I I think he does have something to contribute defensively. I don't. We'll see how his defensive numbers settle in. One guy that kind of surprised me and just kind of uh, I think uh, Alex Duvall, Royals Farm Report, pointed this out the other day. Kyle Isabel has been like plus seven defensive runs saved in the outfield this year, which I know he's really struggled at the plate. But that was really surprising to me. And for a guy who there was a lot of doubts about whether or not he could handle center center field. um, That's that's pretty impressive. And that, you know, that's only in 500 innings, which, uh, you know, normally a center fielder, you know, if you played every day would have like twelve hundred or so. Um, or more than that, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe have to 1500 So over a full season, that's we're talking pretty close to Lorenzo Cain numbers. Now, again, kind of small sample size. Um, you know, is, is he that great for a full season? I don't know. But the point is, he's been really good this year, and, and perhaps he, he warrants maybe a little bit more playing time. We'll see. You know, Drew Waters is up now, and he's playing really well as well. So we'll, I don't know how Kyle Isabel fits in that equation, um, but it's kind of it's a nice problem to have a lot of guys can go out there and get the ball a little bit Um, One thing I've really noticed with these guys, and I think this has been an organizational sea change uh, and and approach, is these guys can draw walks. Uh, They've got three rookies right now uh, who've had uh, significant playing time. Vinny Pascantino, Nick Prado, and MJ Melendez, all with walk rates of at least 10%. Uh, Since Dayton Moore got here uh, in, two let's say, 2007 was his first year, here are the number. There have been a total, a total of nine seasons where a hitter has qualified for the batting title and had a walk rate of at least ten percent. Uh, and 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 four of those are Alex Gordon. The other uh, two are Billy Butler. We've got a Jorge Soler year in there, a Billy Butler year, and a Hunter Dozier in a strike and a COVID shortened year. So not a lot of players have done that in the Dayton Moore era. And we've got three rookies who have put up a ten percent walk rate. Which it's again small sample size. Let's see if they do that for a full season. But that's pretty encouraging, and and I think you can see it in their approach. I mean, you see M J Melendez with a very mature approach to the plate. He's not up there hacking. He's up there looking for a pitch to hit. M Nick Prado, and I said this a little bit on the radio before. You know, it's almost to a fault with him. Like he's the knock on him in the minors is that he let too many pitches go by and he got called for strikes uh, too many times. And I think we've seen that a little bit at the major league level. And perhaps he's just. He's going to have to learn to be a little more aggressive or learn the, learn the major league strikes on a little bit better. Maybe he benefits from an automatic, automated ball system if that comes in the next couple of years, which we can talk about in a little bit. But but um, I, at least I like that he's willing to at least take a pitch now and again. And and, and like I said, you you know, he's, you know he's they're going to go through ups and downs, and we'll see if Nick Prado can make those kind of adjustments. And then Vinny Pascantino is kind of the embodiment of the three true outcomes player, which the Royals have just either not developed or when they develop a guy like that, don't give him a shot. So it's kind of really encouraging that they said, no, actually... This guy is, is pretty valuable, even if he can't necessarily be a plus defender at first base. The fact that he is looking for a pitch to hit, was willing to take walks, and when he does hit it, hits absolute frozen ropes, is pretty valuable to us. That's something we value now. We don't care if he, he doesn't look like Eric Hosmer at first base anymore. Um, that's, I think that's an encouraging thing. So I think the, the fact they have kind of changed their approach, they, you know, they you know, overhauled their minor league hitting system in the minors. They they have a philosophy of like look for a pitch to hit and do damage with that pitch and if it's not if you don't get that pitch then it's okay to let it go by that's a big difference from what they were teaching I think a decade ago and so it's that's been really encouraging to see it actually seems to be producing some results and I think if you look at the minors um, it's certainly not uniform but you you do see some guys that are they're down there drawing walks uh, aren't just hacking away at everything so that's been an, impress, an impressive thing to, to see and uh, hopefully these young guys can kind of keep it up you know and, and you know and Drew Waters another guy who um, wasn't really a guy that was walking with the Braves, and he came over to Kansas City, and, um, you know, it's it's probably too early to judge, but he has definitely drawn walks since he's come over to the Royals organization, and he's talked about how he, you know, the, the Royals had a different philosophy and, and told him to kind of simplify things and just look for a pitch to hit, and it seems to be working so far, and we'll see if it pays off for him in the long run, but um, I definitely like that they're taking that approach rather than, hey, it's okay, swing at everything, just put the ball in play and make something happen, so... Um, you know, it's, I think it's nice. It's it's exciting to have these young kids. Um, and I think when you look over at Baltimore, um, you know that's kind of that's kind of like a best case scenario of what the Royals could what could happen to the Royals, right? Uh, a team that's young that that has had a lot of really bad losing seasons the last couple of years, but this year it's clicked. They're getting the young guys up. They've got some more guys on the way. Gunnar Henderson was called up this week. Their top prospect, uh, exciting young infielder. Uh, he joins already you know a team that has Adley Rushman uh, and some other good young talent. Uh, Matthew, do you, you know, I think we we're starting to see kind of our 2023 lineup up here. Is it enough in your mind to make that kind of leap? I mean, obviously a lot of things have to go right, but is it, can you envision a a scenario where the Royals do kind of have a season like that or, or is there still some work to be done in accumulating some young talent?
1: That's a, that's a really good question. I think that the Royals Um, hitters um, are poised to have a pretty big season next year. Um, I would not at all be surprised by that um, in part because what, what I said and what Jeremy was saying, um, they have overall been, you know, been pretty decent just right out of the gate. They haven't been great, um, but none of the Royals, you know, top four prospects has, has been a below average hitter uh, this year um, in in their time, Um, which is, you know, pretty good to have four guys all of which you know 22 23 24 um right out of the gate um have been have been okay at the plate overall yeah they've had their their you know their flaws and their issues but remember rookies don't tend to do very well right out of the gate when they're that young and to see them you know be competitive and to put to your point of of putting together really good at bats and taking walks that's really great to see. you know you hope that they can you know improve their pitch recognition and be able to make better contact and more contact um, in the spots that they want to um, but that comes with time you know when you look at um you know like Carlos Beltron Beltron won rookie of the year but it wasn't really until he was 24 25 26 that he turned into you know Carlos Beltron like those things kind of take time sometimes. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Royals, you know, kind of take that step. They have enough young talent that they have enough guys that could take that next step. Maybe Drew Waters puts it together and is a solidly above average, you know, hitter um, and a really great defender in center field. You know, they, they have enough players. They have, you know, six players, six rookies. I think um, the core are Drew Waters um, and Michael Massey, who I'm relatively high on because he hits a lot of line drives Um I think that those among those six, we could see a couple of breakouts. The real question is, well, there are two real questions. One is the pitching. Is the pitching going to be good enough? I don't think so. Um, and B, uh, the question is, are the Royals going to use these players correctly? Um, they have been really uh, leaning on their veterans, even when it's pretty obvious to everyone else that you know they should give other players a shot. You know Nate Eaton should be up here, and we should be trying to figure out what Nate Nate Eaton is, even if he's just a utility player. We need to figure that out. The Royals need to figure that out. What's happening? They're playing Mike Lay Taylor. They're playing Hunter Dozier. They're playing Ryan O'Hearn. The latter two arguably shouldn't be on a major league roster. Um, so, it's that that's that's really the the other side of the coin is the Royals finally gave in and started giving their rookies playing time. But then they do stuff where they're they're hitting Ryan Howard, you know, batting cleanup. Where it's just really obvious that they should they should be giving more plate appearances to their young guys. Like they're not going anywhere this season. Yes, you're giving a lot of plate appearances to young guys, but you need to be giving more plate appearances to, to the young guys. You know, we can we will probably end up talking a little a little bit about this, but Hunter Dozier's spot on the roster, you know, it, I. For like a league average, you know, hitter, right-handed bat, you know, independent of his contract, you know, that's a guy that you could have on your roster. Certainly, if he can play four, you know, four positions, but does he need to be playing every day over Nate Eaton, um, over Edward Olivares when he comes back? He just started a um, a rehab assignment in Omaha. He's gonna he's gonna be coming back. I would much rather see Edward Olivares. So. You know, the the Royals... Oh, and it's not to say about Kyle Lisbell I'm going to see more of Kyle Lisbell Kyle too. Um, the Royals just kind of get in their own way a lot, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some breakout seasons, um, but there are sort of more structural and uh, coaching sort of issues that are probably going to prevent the team from being what it could be uh, next year. I always say that you know, bad teams and young teams have the superpower where they can just try stuff out and there's no downside to it. Like, so what if the Royals lose 105 games that they're not going anywhere? Um, all that, that time they give to the youngsters, you know, that's, that's, um, something that good teams don't have the ability to do. Uh, like, you know, the 2015 Royals, they didn't take a chance on Whitmerfield. Uh, even when they probably should have, but they didn't have the the you know margin for error there. They didn't they they felt that they couldn't do do that. Now in hindsight, Whitmerfield was the right guy to play, and they should have recognized it. But that's not an unusual play, right? Good teams will avoid uh, the potential for downside, and bad teams the potential for downside doesn't matter. They can try out a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I just wish that the Royals would lean more into that. And that's really what's getting in their own way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we do have the young guys up, and I, I'm, I, 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 to me, it's baby steps, you know. At least they have the the kids up, and the most, like I said, most nights we're seeing six, seven rookies in the lineup. I'm not too hung up about Ryan O'Hearn, uh, even though it is, you're right, it's inexplicable why he's getting at bats, I, but I get it. They want, you know, Brewer Hicklin, I guess, playing every day in Triple A. To me, a Brewer Hicklin or Nate Eden is probably just a bench guy anyway. So it's, let's get him to the big leagues, get him against big league pitching. Uh, but I'm not gonna lose sleep sleep over it. Uh, but you know we are getting some of the young kids up. And Jeremy, what you know, are we seeing the 2023 23 lineup right now? Is this do you th- do you see this core uh, being the one going forward that they kind of go? This is kind of their their group because I don't know if there's a uh, necessarily a, a huge wave coming behind them. I don't you know once once these guys once all the players that graduate you know at the end of the year, I think Nick Prado and Vinny Past team that will have all graduated off prospect lists. The only hitter that will, you know, probably make a top one hundred list at that point will be Gavin Cross, their first round pick from uh, this year. Uh, so I don't know. There's an, and it'll take probably another year before he's up in the big leagues. So is this kind of is this kind of it? Are we do we see the twenty twenty three lineup? Will they go outside the organization, uh, or do you want to see these young guys kind of get a, a full year?
2: I think it would be criminal malpractice uh, to go out and and bring in a I. Hum- you could you could convince me one right-handed bat uh, that's it you bring in anything else and it has to be like you're not going to the bargain bin you're not going to the to the dumpster dive i say 100 Doja's probably available if you want them <laughs> <laughs> like if you're going to bring in somebody you better bring in somebody good Um, and they need to justify that that roster spot that they're taking, because what we're seeing, uh, as we've kind of been talking about, is these guys are showing flashes, and and they have a prospect pedigree, Um, so there's reason to believe that these flashes are not flukes, that they might be the beginning of something, that these are sparks that can become a fire, rather than sparks that are just going to fizzle out. Um, And so... I, 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 criminal malpractice if they bring in uh, if they bring in a Lucas Duda or somebody <laughs> like that again, just take bats from people. Just, it was it was stupid before when they had guys like O'Hearn and uh, uh, Schwindel who could play first base to go get a Lucas Duda. Like, yeah, maybe, and as it turns out, probably neither of them is big league first baseman, at least not a starter. But Lucas Duda wasn't either. And they had to pay him a lot more. And, and you couldn't – there was no upside there, only downside. So that's that's the thing I absolutely do not want to see. This is the lineup that we should mostly see. If they get rid of Dozier, great. Uh, if they get rid of O'Hearn, great. If they get rid of Michael Taylor, I'm okay with that too. Like I'm okay if the lineup – only if the only veteran in the lineup is Salvador Perez. That would suit me just fine. Now, if they want to go out and make a splash in free agency – I think they could do it on the pitching side and it wouldn't necessarily make them competitors next year, but I think they could, they could get a starter. Like if they could get a frontline, one more frontline starter, because I think Brady Singer has kind of turned into a frontline starter in front of our eyes. Uh, if they could get one more, you know, maybe they're not competitive in 2022, but I think it gives them confidence to try. Um, and that's kind of what I feel about 2013 was yeah, uh maybe uh, James Shields didn't help them win the playoff get to the playoffs that year but it gave the team kind of confidence like oh oh we're going we're doing this and i feel like they really really went out there and tried and they got close and then it helped them in 2014 and i think it, it could be a similar situation next year if they if they go get uh a frontline starter like that to be like listen all right you guys are here maybe you're not quite ready but we're going to give you a chance. Like if this if everything works out, you're going to the playoffs. Um, but and, and that's the thing that they don't have right now in 2023 is if even if everything works out, they're probably even if they get best case scenarios from a lot of these guys, they're still probably not going to the playoffs. If they go and they get a frontline starter like that, then they have a shot at going to the playoffs. If everything goes right, will everything go right? Probably not. So that's when you're setting up 2024. Where potentially you go, okay, you guys were almost there last year. Now you've got two years of experience under your belts, and last year you had experience of like really being in a in a playoff chase, even though you didn't make it, or you know, even if they weren't particularly close, they were really trying. Um, then then that could that could pay dividends in twenty
0: twenty four. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if I go all in with a frontline starter right now. I I I mentioned this kind of last week is you know getting a guy like an Irving Santana like they got in 2013 uh and in Jeremy Guthrie I think I was a solid free agent at least in the first year um, those you know those those kind of moves can go a long way towards helping a young team stabilize their pitching staff and and be in more games and help you along that development process and I think that'd be kind of a prudent thing to do um, as far as this core you know I, there was an interesting article at ESPN this week um, where they kind of ranked organizations based on the talent they had locked up. So, uh, you know, and I misread it first. I thought it was young talent, but they actually mean all talent. So even guys that are signed along, you know, older guys signed to long-term deals or, you know, that are going to be with this team for the next couple of years, that, that counts. So under that metric, they uh, ranked the Royals 27th in talent locked up. Now... I like these kind of lists because I think they're a little more objective. I think we're a little too close to the organization. So we say, you know, we get a little excited about some of these players because we've seen them in the minors and we're hopeful. So this is maybe a little more objective. However, looking at the list, I do have to question the list a little bit. Um, They have – so they kind of rank how many guys do you have that are elite, how many do you have that are above average, and how many do you have that are solid. For the Royals, they don't have any elite players, which, okay – that's fine. I, I, Bobby Witt could, could be elite someday. Certainly not that yet. Um, they list Bobby Witt as above average, which I think with his average bat right now and his his speed and his defense, I think, yeah, he's been a very value, above average player uh, uh, value-wise. And then in the solid category, they have Vinny Pascantino, Salvador Perez, Nicky Lopez, Brady Singer, MJ Melendez, Kyle Isabel, Daniel Lynch, Nick Prado, and Nick Lofton. Some of that's based on, I think, their future potential, but some of that's based on what they've done already. So you could quibble a little bit with that. I think Brady Singer maybe is moving to that above-average category. You could argue MJ Melendez maybe has the potential to move in that above-average category. Maybe Salvador Perez is an above-average you know, catcher. I think a lot of people would argue that. So I think you can quibble with that a little bit. But <laughs> looking on the list, like some of the teams ahead of us, the A's, okay, they've got a good amount of talent. I don't know their farm system super well, but they've, they've, developed, they've traded everyone away. So they've obviously developed a lot of young talent. The Tigers... Uh, Yeah, listed among solid contributors for them, Eduardo Rodriguez. I mean, I don't know if that's a contract I'd necessarily want. Uh, Spencer Torkelson certainly hasn't done anything yet. I guess he could. Uh, Alex Lang, he feels like just a guy to me. Uh, Then moving up the list, the Red Sox, above average Chris Sale. Is he still an above average pitcher considering his health? (laughs) I don't know. Um, Got a
2: pitch to be above average.
0: Yeah, their solid contributors are Christian Arroyo, who is, again, just a guy, I think. Nick Pavetta hasn't really, I don't feel like he's turned the corner quite yet. Um, The the, one that really stuck out to me, the Angels, David Fletcher, is one of their above average. Would you put David Fletcher on par with Bobby Witt Jr.? I wouldn't. Uh, So the methodology seems a little off here. Like the the Diamondbacks in their above average category have Merrill Kelly, who's a 33-year-old having a career year, but... Do I want him a year or two from now? No, uh, he's been pretty average to sub to below average in his career. So I, I don't you know. It's just a fun list they put. I don't think they it was exactly scientific, but uh, I guess get you know that just leads me to I'm questioning with you for you, Matthew. How do you feel about this core overall? Um, you know, I think there are certainly some question marks, but um, uh, they are off to a good start, and I think maybe not as good as some people would like do you feel comfortable with this core going forward? Because uh, especially since we've seen a core come here before that one, a world series is this one you, you could kind of squint and see uh, future penance with the Royals. I'd say, yeah,
1: all of my problems with the Royals have nothing to do with, with Prado, Melendez, Pascarantino, um, Massey waters, um, you know, the, the young talent that they have that's at, in either Omaha or the big leagues, um, you know, you can clearly see, you know, if they just take even all of them, if they just take one step forward, they'll be pretty good players. Um, and it's not that unusual for players. Um, in fact, it's pretty likely for that players, you know, get better uh, into their mid 20s. So I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good with this. I think the Royals have something going um, with their position players. Um, as I said earlier, my issues with the team have basically everything to do But that core, I think the core could be, um, you know, pretty good. Um, I don't know if you're going to ever have like a top three American League, you know, MVP guy, kind of like Lorenzo Cain was. Um, But I but I think, you know, like Bobby Witt is already the version of uh, Alberto Montesi that we all wanted to see. Like, he's already that player. He plays he's super fast. He's a great um, base runner. Um, his on-base percentage isn't very great, but he has great power, you know, at shortstop. Like, he is already what we all wanted Mondesi to be. Um, and that's just right right out of the gate as a 22-year-old rookie. So I feel pretty good about this group. Um, I'm really excited to see them as they, you know, have an off-season to develop um, after seeing, you know the big league pitching which is hard so i'm really looking forward to seeing them all uh develop next year we know they all won't improve but even if only a couple of them take us take a step forward you know young uh or small market teams rely on creating that um you know all-star level talent um and i think that the royals could have a couple of all-stars in this group
0: let's talk about some of the uh non-core guys and we mentioned a little bit already hunter dozier you know he's not having a great year for the third year in a row. Uh, certainly doesn't seem to kind of fit in a team that's going through youth movement. Um, he, but he signed to that long-term deal. The Royals had Michael A. Taylor, who there was a good article at inside the Royals over on Sports Illustrated about how the Royals had a chance to trade him and, and you, know, or, you know seemingly had a chance to trade him at the deadline and didn't. And now he's kind of regressed a little bit. Will they have a chance to trade him this offseason? We'll see. And then there was a, a, an interview this week with JJ Piccolo where they asked him about Zach Granke. Uh, if he wanted Zach to return next year. And uh, and Piccola said uh, d- we would definitely have interest in having Zach back. Uh, Jeremy, how do you see some of these non-core guys, non-young core guys fit in? Uh, are Hunter Dozier, Michael Taylor, and Zach Grinky going to be on next year's roster?
2: Um, my read of the Zach Granke situation is if Zach Grinky wants to keep pitching next year, he'll be with the Royals. Um, I think they'll they'll give him basically whatever he wants. They already gave him thirteen million this year. Which there's no such thing as a bad one year deal, but that's a lot of money for a uh, thirty nine year old Zach Greinke. How old was he? Thirty. Uh, he'll
0: be thirty nine. Uh, I think this next next month.
2: Yeah. So thirty eight, thirty nine year old Zach Greinke. That's a lot of money to give to him. Uh, but I and honestly, he hasn't been bad. He's he's been a kind of average starting pitcher. So I don't mind having him back. I also don't mind having uh, I don't mind having uh, Michael A. Taylor come back. I think that would be okay. I I do mind that they didn't trade him at the deadline, but having not traded him at the height of his value, um, if they don't trade him in the offseason, I don't think it's criminal. I, I, I keep using that phrase, I guess, criminal malpractice. Uh, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an awful decision. Uh, you could go either way, and I wouldn't be upset. I think. Uh, Hunter Dozier. Now, the interesting thing, as I think about Hunter Dozier, is you brought up Jeremy Guthrie, and, and the Royals got Jeremy Guthrie with a deal of bad contracts. We actually had an article uh, written by, I believe, uh, Colin Jekyll uh, earlier today on Royals Review that was very I really thought was interesting and pretty good, uh, talking about potentially trading uh, a Hunter Dozier for somebody else's bad contract, and... I am one hundred percent for trading bad contracts every time, like swapping bad contracts. It's, it's a win-win. Either you you get a guy who actually benefited from a change of scenery, as Jeremy Guthrie did, or you get a guy who is exactly as bad as the guy you already have. Like you, there's no downside to it. Um, it's it's the only upside proposition, which I think is is always a, 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 a strong path to take. Um, so if they could. Uh, uh, if they could find a way to uh, to send uh, Hunter Dozier to somebody else for another bad contract, uh, especially if it was a pitcher, uh, a veteran pitcher, um, who could help them with some of these innings, because that's it's been a struggle this year, again, to get innings pitched, uh, I, I think that would be a, a quality move, uh, regardless of whether they think they're going to try and compete next year or not.
0: Matthew, would you see those three veteran players coming back next year?
2: Uh Greinke, depends on Greinke He could
1: retire. I think Michael A. Taylor and Hunter Dozier will be back. Um, in part because the Royals don't have to re sign them. They're they're just they would have to actively move away from them. I don't uh Michael A. Taylor has been pretty productive, um, over the last two years combined, um, as of right now, um, over a, over a total two hundred and forty two games played, he's been worth three and a half wins above replacement. Um that's He's he's been pretty productive over the last two years. Um, I I really don't have anything bad to say about Michael A. Taylor. I'm sure he's not the best you know the best player, but he's been a productive player. I don't you know I don't know what you expect for a guy who's making nine million dollars over two years. Um, but he, he he's been underrated. I think um, the problem is that the Royals are using Michael A. Taylor as a everyday starter um, when I think that Michael A. Taylor should be. a, a bench outfielder. He should come off the bench. He should be, um, you know, this, that center field spot should be Kyle Isbell's, um, just to try out. It's okay if Mike Lee Taylor plays a lot, but you know, I, I, I don't think that he should be the everyday center fielder. Certainly, Kyle Isbell oh, and Drew Waters. You know, I would rather see Drew Waters and Kyle Isbell on center field over, over Taylor. I would not have Taylor be the center fielder as the Royals have continued to play him as. Um, he has not played right field with the Royals this year. He has not played left field with the Royals this year. He has only played center field. I don't think he's good enough, and certainly he doesn't really fit with the rest of the timeline to be the everyday center fielder, which he really has been. Um, with little exception the last, like, couple of weeks since, since Drew Waters. Is up. I think, you know, just flipping it so Drew Waters is the starter and Taylor is the backup, I think that's the ideal thing. But with Taylor himself, perfectly fine guy to have on your team, really. Um, and kind of the similar thing with Dozier, I think, you know, Everyone kind of expects the Royals to, you know, get rid of him. Teams don't get rid of guys um, with multi-year contracts making, you know, seventeen, eighteen million dollars very often. It happens sometimes, uh, but the Royals, you know, are, are not acting unusually in keeping Dozier on the team, even though he's not matching his contract. That happens all over the place. Again, the issue with Dozier is that the Royals are playing him as a mostly everyday player when Dozier should be just a bench bat uh, at this point. Um, And it was really, you know, kind of disappointing to see Nate Eaton get sent down over Dozier because Nate Eaton could be, you know, um, a younger, and better version of Hunter Dozier. Um, You know, like Dozier, Eaton plays the outfield like Dozier Eaton has played third base too. He hasn't played it in the big leagues, but Eaton has played a lot of third base in the minors. You know, I would rather that, that spot sort of go to him, but, you know, Dozier is like I said; he's he's a fine guy in that last bench spot, like the spot that Ryan O'Hearn has been has been occupying. Like, if you want to put Ryan in like the last bench spot, or excuse me, if you want to put Hunter Dozier in the last bench spot over Ryan O'Hearn, you know, I think that's that's a fine thing to do. Um, so ultimately, the the problem I think doesn't really come down to either player; it comes down to the Royals' usage of those players, um, which just doesn't fit with what they're trying to do um, with the youth movement.
0: Yeah, I think Taylor, you're right about Taylor. He's, he's been, I think, as advertised or better, if not, you know, if not better. I mean, he's been a fantastic defender. He's hit a little bit. You know, this year, I think his bat's been fine. Um, so I think there will be a market for him this offseason. I think the Royals are motivated sellers and don't ask for a ton in return. I think you can move him. Like you said, the contract is very reasonable. He's a solid fourth outfielder for contender. Cooper gives you great defense? I thought, really, I thought the Yankees were a really good fit for him at the trade deadline. They needed some defense. They needed uh, an outfielder who could hit a little bit. And I thought Taylor was a really good fit for them, uh, with especially when, once they moved Julie Gallo. Um, so I was a little surprised, a little disappointed. The Royals didn't move him. Uh, But I think that opportunity will still be there this offseason. I do expect him to get traded. Like you said, there's there's almost like a little bit of a glut in the outfield. Not that they have like a ton of studs out there, but enough interesting guys you want to get a look at like Waters, like Isabel, Edward Olivares, who doesn't seem to be in their, you know, he seems to be in their doghouse for whatever reason, but he's a guy that could get a chance. Um, You know, Melendez certainly could play a lot of outfield next year. And I don't know what you do with Hunter Dozier at this point. Uh, One thing... I was just looking at his contract. You know, they've got seventeen million dollars and two years left on his deal. Um, if he plays full time next year and gets about 500, 600 plate appearances, uh, he gets another two extra million, one and a half million dollars on his contract. So they're, you're kind of uh, you kind of have a vested interest in not letting him get to that point, which I don't like when teams play those shenanigans. But he's not a guy that's necessarily deserved to play every day, and so I think you're right. If he's in a situation where they put him in a Ryan O'Hearn role where he's sitting and only plays once or twice a week, is a bench bat. I think that's fine. He doesn't provide any defensive value for you. On the other hand, you're, you're also right, and you say, like, Nate Eaton is a guy that could also fill that role that would give you more upside at this point. So they're, they're not a team that's typically eating that kind of money. Um, I think even with Omar Infante, there was about a year and a half left on his deal when they kind of finally threw in the towel on that. He had been bad. Much worse for longer, I think, than Dozier. Maybe, um, but Joe, that was a different ownership group, and we'll see if John Sherman feels differently. Maybe he's willing to say, "Okay, let's let's go full on board with this youth movement." Hunter Dozier doesn't have a place on this team, and we'll move forward uh, without him. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll consider some rule changes to the pick to the pace of play of baseball. Well, Jeremy, you had an article this week that uh, wrote about well, you wrote about some of the changes that baseball could. Uh, could adopt next year uh, that will be sure to please some baseball purists um, how exactly do you think purists will appreciate the new rules
2: so the the three rules that I think are most likely to be implemented next year um, and none of these are guaranteed but based on what I'm hearing around the, the sport uh, these are the three that I think are most likely to happen are uh, the pitch clock that they've implemented in the minor leagues it's been pretty successful down there uh games have been much, much shorter. Uh and there hasn't been a significant injury uptick, which some people were worried about. Um and then also the ban on the shift, I think, is coming. Uh if not next year, then probably the year after. And then finally the bigger bases, I think, are, are coming next year as well. Uh and so when I look at those three changes, uh I immediately say these are all good for the sport. Um that's my <laughs> initial impression. And then I thought, well, why are they good for the sport? What do they benefit the sport? And what I realized as I was kind of looking at it was that uh, they benefit the sport by taking it back to uh, what it has been in the past. Um, so when you talk about the pitch clock, guys didn't used to spend thirty seconds between pitches. Josh Stalmon would would no one would play for him. They would look at his pitching and they go, "Come on, dude, throw the ball. We want to play some defense out here." Uh, they 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 got the ball they threw the ball um and and i know that guys are doing that now in part to kind of ramp up and throw that ball harder so what you're gonna see i think uh with the pitch clock is not just faster games but what you're gonna see is less maximum effort pitches uh which is going to to decrease the strikeouts i think to some degree and i think it has an opportunity to increase uh some of the uh, some some of the hitting And um, potentially, this is just kind of big brain thinking this could be complete nonsense. But I, I kind of wonder if maybe one of the reasons, guy, I, I've always been fascinated by this idea that guys used to be able to throw 150, 200 pitches in a day and have no arm trouble. And everybody now has all these arm problems. And one of the things that I've kind of learned is that as as the muscles have gotten bigger, uh, guys are just, they're just, muscles are bigger now than they were uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, the ligaments are not bigger they're not stronger and and they you know as you add all that force they're more likely to tear so if guys are throwing less maximum effort pitches that they're putting less uh, uh pressure on those ligaments and potentially they're going to be healthier pitchers uh, which is you know the opposite of what some people were worried about when it came to the pitch clock uh will it work out that way if- I mean, like I said, big brain out of left field thinking. Uh, these are just some some facts that I kind of put together on my own, but I think it's it's a possibility, at least a remote possibility. Um, and then if you know guys are healthier, then maybe pitchers can start going deeper into games again, which would, again, I think appease that purist crowd. Um, the bigger bases are a benefit, uh, as I said in the article, because they're they're just because they're safer. If nothing else, I think that's I think that's enough. Is that they're safer. Um, Because there's more room for a guy to tag the base and for a guy to run over the base. And also they're flatter. Um, This isn't talked about much, but the the larger bases are also flatter, which means you're going to have less chance of injury coming into them um, and more chance of actually staying on the base as you try and slide in there for a stolen base or you're trying to take an extra base uh, and not come off of it, which is you're not going to bounce off of it and you're going to have more surface area to grab onto. Um, so I, I think the, the way that that could benefit uh, baseball purists is I think you could see a lot more stolen bases because the biggest reason pe- teams aren't stealing bases now is because analytics say, well, you have to steal a certain percentage of them for it to be worth it. And, and it's really hard to steal that high percentage now. But if the bases are a little bit bigger, it's a little bit easier to stay on them. Maybe those percentages are a little bit easier to attain and it makes more sense to start stealing some bases again. And then finally... Uh, the last change would be the shift ban. And I'll admit this one's a little bit of a stretch, but I think uh, baseball purists should appreciate a ban on the, the, the shift because it just wasn't part of the game, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It is. Uh, there were shifts that happened but it was not every single batter and they were not this extreme uh at least not with any regularity and so the the way the game is played is drastically different now because of these shifts and and I, I would like to see uh, the game return to something that looks a little bit more like what we saw uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, where, uh, you know, infielders are mostly playing on their side of the infield. And, and when a guy hits a smash up the middle, it's a single instead of a double play ball. Uh, so that's that's just kind of the overview, I think, of the most likely rule changes and why I think people would would should appreciate them uh, especially baseball purists who tend to be the people who speak out the most uh, against them and say why would you change the sport and i think they're changing the sport to make it more like it used to be
0: so there's an article last week about Hall of Famer Rod Carew it says he he and some other Hall of Famers confronted commissioner Rob Manfred about you know the state of the game basically saying you know the baseball has become unwatchable or is not as fun of a game to watch as it used to be and his complaints seem to center around analytics to which you know manfred understandably said well we can't ban analytics I mean that that, <laughs> that 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 barn door has been opened you know like I can't stop the flow of information uh which is true I mean you can't you can't just ban analytics but you can I think a league's job is to mitigate the effects of what teams are doing and that happens all the time like football teams were getting to the point where they were just grabbing receivers and throwing them to the ground and they said you know this is not a good good game, we need to open up passing more, and they changed the rules so you can't you know, basically tackle a guy within the first five yards. And it's made the game much, much more enjoyable to watch. Basketball in the late 90s, everyone is doing what the Knicks were doing, You're just hammering guys in the lane, and you had scores that were 80 to 75, and it was just like, who can beat up each other the most? And Finally, they they, they, they started implementing some rules to open the open up the lane a little bit, prevent some of that physicality, which some purists may not like. But that has made the game, uh, I think, a, a more pleasant game to watch. Now, some people would say now that there's too much three point shooting, which maybe maybe base, basketball needs to change that and maybe move back the line or do something to to reduce that incentive. But that's what leagues do. They they always tweak. The teams are always looking to find an inefficiency in the game and exploit that so that they have an advantage. And if that makes the game better, then that's great. But if it makes the game less enjoyable to watch, then the sport needs to do some rule changes to counter that. Uh, and so I think a lot of these make sense. So the pitch clock, I think, is well, way overdue. Um, the, the bases, I think the larger bases are really interesting. I, you know, Having them actually a little bit closer together could also help steals a little bit. Banning the shift is the one I've always been a little uh, uneasy about uh, just because I, I feel like, okay... You know he's going to hit it there. Why can't you play? Why can't you put all your guys there? You know, um, and I think it rewards the pull hitters. Whereas you know, you want more guys to spray the ball over the field, and uh, and you just you need to get you need to develop more guys that can do that. Uh, but I think Alex Duvall made a. I think he kind of converted me a little bit when he talked about how these other sports have put rules in place, like you can't just sit in the middle of a lane in the NBA, even though you know that's where they're going because. That doesn't make a very good game. You can't put, you know, uh, all your guys off the line in football, even though you know they're going to pass, because that would make a less pleasant game. So they do, uh, they do rules to counteract those kind of strategies. And so perhaps, you know, some sort of limit on the shift would make some sense. Matthew, is there is there a rule change you're excited about, or are you or, you, or maybe resistant to on this list? Oh, it's the pits clock. It's
1: 100% the pits clock. Um, I went to a. Kansas City current game uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago um, and I was reminded how you know really kind of nice um, and succinct um, and efficient you know soccer games are right so there's you know 45 minute halves um, and then there's 15 minute you know 15 and 20 minute halftime. a half time. Um, you know it's just you get stoppage time as well but you know it's basically you know two hours boom you're done um, and uh, for for a standard game that you know doesn't go into any overtime or whatever, but that that's really nice. And one of the the problems um, that I have that I didn't really used to think about, but as I've gotten a little bit older, I I don't like really how open ended a baseball game could be in terms of your time commitment. So when you watch a basketball game or a soccer game, you know, pretty much what's going to, you know, what's going to happen as far as how long the game is. NFL games are a little bit longer um, and a little bit more variable, but again, you kind of know exactly what, what you're going to get. You're going to get, you know, three hours, three hours, 15 minutes for NFL two ish hours for soccer, you know, in between there for, for basketball um, depending on, you know, what happens in the game for baseball games. It could be anywhere from two hours to four hours, and there's no way to know how long it is, and the later innings can really drag, and if it goes into extra innings, there's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I kind of like, um, I know I'm in the more minority here, but I, I like the sort of ghost runner situation to just Ooh. cut down on, you know, the really, um, you know, the, the really long games. Um, that, that, that I think, is the, the biggest issue with baseball, is that it's, it's really not as efficient as it could be. Our baseball is exciting if the events are packed close enough together. And I think the pitch clock solves all of that. Um, There was an article, I want to say it was about five years or so ago, it was a number of years ago, by uh, Grant Brisby, where he looked at basically two games, um, and one was from a long time ago, and one was from this, uh, you know, just that season. And he looked at the difference between, you know, how do these two games end up so widely different in terms of, you know, um, the length, well, it was mostly because of the time between pitches, as you were talking about, Jeremy. So, um, the, the, that, that I think is going to be a huge change, as long as they like stick to it. Um, and we've seen some, you know, some downsides with that, like Nick Prado striking out because he wasn't in the box, um, you know, in a minor league. So there'll be some kinks to work out, but I think that's the single biggest um, change that I'm excited to see, which is pitch clocks it doesn't change how much action there is. It just changes how much action there is be- or how much, you know, downtime there is between the pitches. And because there are 200 plus pitches in a game, that's a lot of time that you can address. So that's the one I'm excited about.
0: You know, one uh, potential rule change that you didn't mention because it's, it's I think it's a little further away is, is the automated ball strike system, which uh, has been implemented in the Florida state league and a ball and as AAA as well. Uh, And then I think that also has um, uh, some advantages. I I think we've seen uh, some really egregious (laughs) umpiring this year in a lot of Royals games. In fact, I have an article I think I'm working on right now that that shows the Royals have been kind of hosed by umpires this year. Uh, But in AAA, you know, they're still working out some of the kinks, but there's two ways they could could implement it. Uh, One, they could automate all ball strikes, which they've done in some venues. And then they could also have a system where there's still a home plate umpire calling the balls and strikes. But uh, you have a challenge system where you get a certain number of challenges to, to challenge a pitch, and, and, and the, uh, the, the call can be overturned, which I thought, okay, that's going to really slow things down. But I saw a clip of a game where they used it, and it was pretty instantaneous. It was like the pitcher just makes a signal, he taps his head, they challenge, which is, indicates a challenge, The umpire and the umpire knows because he hears all the, the, what the robot umpire is saying. And he, he can say, okay, well, or, or he, he can challenge it. And, and like within a, a couple of seconds, he, he knows the call and, and they either overturn it or, or the, the play stands. So that, that to me, you know, we'll, there's a, I think there's a, some work, some kinks to work out the, the strike zone, you know, where, uh, where the strike zone should sit, uh, you know, how is it catching everything on the corner? Is it catching too many pitches on the corner? That stuff has to work worked out, but I think that's another exciting rule change potentially down the road that. I think could lead to a a better game uh, down the road,
2: and and you can you can do I think, kind of a gradual step process there where you do the challenge system first as they're still working out some of those kinks and then come eventually back with the the fully automated ball strike system. Right.
0: Let's uh, wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Jeremy, why don't you kick it off for us this week? Oh, okay.
2: Uh, so this week I am going to recommend the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks, which is a book series I've been uh, kind of rereading. Um, I never quite finished it, but uh, I did read... The, it was. It's a five-book series, and I read the first four books at one point, and the fifth book wasn't out yet, and I got distracted by other things. So I'm going back through it now. Um, it's a really interesting book series. It is uh, a little... Uh, especially early on, it's a little gruesome at times uh, with the kind of descriptions of violence. But um, it's uh, it's it's got a really interesting set of characters. The politics at play, I think, are, in a way, they're not really super similar to George R. R. Martin's uh, uh, Game of Thrones or The Song of Ice and Fire. But I do feel that in their Dissimilar way, they're as strong. Um, it's it's there's there's fewer players, but the players that are playing are more interesting to me. Uh, so I think it works out in the end. Um, and uh, it does. It, it some people probably consider it an adult series because the main protagonist is a 16 year old boy, um, but it's it's pretty adult in its themes. And like I said, the politics are pretty pretty interesting um so i think an adult could easily enjoy the book as well uh and yeah that's that's what i'm gonna go ahead and recommend it's a it's a fantasy series and it's uh, got a really interesting magic system too i forgot to mention that so uh it's all about using different kinds of light to uh to create different things It's very interesting
0: matthew what do you what do you have uh royals review reviews this week yeah
1: so i watched a show um jeremy you might have heard of it it's a little show called full metal alchemist brotherhood Ooh, yeah
2: yeah so um it's uh one of sort of like
1: the it's not like classic anime in that like 80s or 90s but it's like one of the like to sort of touchstone shows of it's, the it's of the, the medium best thing yeah it's it's you know one of one of the touchstone shows um came out in 2009 and 2010 um, there are two. There are two apparently ad- adaptations of of the manga. There's one called Full Metal Alchemist, which I have not watched, and then there's Full Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Apparently, the difference between the two is that Brotherhood um, was released and it was able to take advantage of all of the source material. Whereas the first adaption um, had to guess at where it was going, and so it ended up in a very different place. I never read the original manga, so I can't, you know, you know, or watch the the you know the first adaptation, which was like in two thousand two or something like that. Like, oh, Yeah. So, anyway, so it's a really it's a really good show. Um, the the sort of key pitch here is it's about these two brothers um, who um, are alchemists. They do stuff with you know uh, elements, um, and they are looking to get back their their full human bodies um, after doing. Uh, after trying to perform one of the taboo acts in alchemy, which is, you know, bringing back a human from the dead, basically. They try to bring back their mom who, who died from uh, illness earlier. And so the, the story follows these two brothers as they try to, you know, get their full humans bodies back. And along with the way, there's, um, you know, a lot of good action. There's some good character stuff. Um, and what's unusual about it in terms of... Um, Unfortunately, in terms of a lot of anime is that are there are a lot of anime that don't have endings um, just based on the how they adapt manga and light novels and how you know it, it's most most anime are adaptations of, of basically other you know the the written form of the media. Um, and they don't always have good endings, or endings that come about in a reasonable time frame. Um, Attack on, uh, Attack on Titan is another sort of touchstone, uh, you know, anime uh, series. More recent, um, that first season came out over ten years ago, and it's still the anime still isn't done. Um, and so it can take a long time for uh, some anime to end. But um, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood has a full ending. Um, it's sixty five. Episodes that are 22 minutes each. And um, it's a really good show. Um, And if you've not sort of watched anything uh, anime wise and you're thinking, huh, what's like the show that I should start with? I think that's it.
0: My Royals Review reviews this week is a video by Foolish Baseball on YouTube called Greg Maddox's 76 Pitch Complete Game is Fake. Uh, It's about a 1997 starter versus the Cubs that. MLB uh, has advertised as a 76-pitch-complete game, but when you look in Baseball Reference at the same game, it says it's a 77-pitch-complete game. Well, Foolish Baseball, uh, in their Baseball bit series, looks at every single pitch from that game and finds they are both wrong. Uh, it's kind of a very amusing look back at Greg Maddux. He not only debunks the 76 pitch complete game, but also um, a meme that goes around about Greg Maddox, about how good he was on 3 or how good he was at not getting 3-0 counts that has circulated the internet that turns out to be wrong as well, uh, and also debunks the, the notion that Greg Maddox didn't throw hard, which uh, was wrong. Greg Maddox actually threw fairly hard and struck out a lot of hitters. Uh, but if you do watch the video, a couple things stand out. Number one, boy, Greg Maddox is really good at pitching. I mean, he was <laughs> phenomenal pinpoint control he was an outstanding fielder. I mean, he's probably the best defensive fielder. All apologies to, all apologies to Jim Codd, who I think has the most gold gloves, but Greg Maddox was an outstanding uh, fielder at his, his position. But also just the, the incredible movement he had on his pitch. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, just his two seamers, uh, the, the way the ball kind of comes back on, on right-handed hitters, it's 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 really absurd. Uh, he was a phenomenal pitcher and one of the best of all time for good reason. The other thing that stands out, Boy, 90s umpires were really bad. I mean, this is, in fairness, it's Eric Gregg who's kind of notorious about how big his strike zone was, but there are some calls that Greg Maddox gets that you're like, what are you looking at there? <laughs> it is it is way outside the strike zone. That's probably where uh, talk about Robo started because, uh, you know, that's when guys like Greg Maddox would get those calls. But certainly not a guy like Dan Reichert for the Royals or someone like that, so it's a it's a really amusing video, uh, very much in the style of like uh, Dork Town from John Boys and Alex Rubenstein, where uh, it, it, it does some debunking, but in a really playful, cheeky way, so definitely check out Foolish Baseball's, Greg Maddox's 76-pitch complete game is fake. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thanks to Matthew and Jeremy for being on, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time.